Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In essays that combine memoir with biography of place, Kevin Holdsworth creates a public history of the land he calls home, Goodwater, Utah. The high desert of South Central Utah is at the heart of the stories he tells about the people, the survivors and casualties, as he calls them, of the small remote town. And uh, that high desert is at the heart of his own story. In his book, Good Water, which is out from University Press of Colorado, Holdsworth also explores history at a personal level, how Native American history is preserved by local park officials, how Mormon settlers adapted to remote, rugged places, how small communities attract and retain those less likely to thrive closer to population centers. Now, he became a local uh, politics, involved in local politics. He confronts the issues of land use and misuse in the West, and but also considers life's simple pleasures like the value of scenery and the importance of occasionally tossing a horseshoe. Kevin Holdsworth is author previously of Big Wonderful, Notes from Wyoming. His work has appeared in numerous periodicals, including Simmer and Review, Post Road, Creative Nonfiction, and Denver University Law Review. And uh, 2009, he was awarded the Wyoming Arts Council Creative Writing Fellowship for Fiction. He lives with his wife Jennifer and son Chris in South Central and Southern Utah. Kevin Holdsworth, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks. Thank you for inviting me, Tom, and thanks for all you do in keeping rural Utah connected. Well, I love rural Utah, and uh, you talk about a lot about Wayne County. I love Wayne County. I've been there yes, several indeed. times. It's a fabulous place with just amazing scenery and very interesting people. Uh, you, uh, I guess, do you still teach higher education, Snow College, and other places? I do. Uh-huh. Uh, you've taught at Western Wyoming Community College, Weber State University. Yeah. Um, I wonder, uh, just to jump in here, if you could would read us the the epigraph. You uh, you quote. You have a quotation from uh, Ken Brewer. Sure. It's called Cedar and Stone. To grow among stone, nobody's goal, but if the wind. Or water leaves you there, or the road traveled stops, you grow. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess it's it's applies to nature, but also applies to you, I expect. Well, I, I don't know, I guess. I mean, I like to think so. And, of course, uh, my relationship with Ken, uh, the late Ken Brewer, goes way back. And it was a, it was a way to honor his, his memory to, to have him start it off. Yeah, and you end the book with Ken Brewer. We'll we'll talk about uh, uh, Ken, wonderful poet, uh, teacher, uh, later in the program. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your biography. You you treat this in Big Wonderful. Um, you were raised in Utah, and then you couldn't wait to get out. You say <laughs> that's right. I I grew up in Salt Lake City, and uh, you know I felt that I had to uh, make up for that provincial upbringing by going to live in the big cities, which I I did, and I was so homesick that. Uh, I uh, wrote a Western, uh, quite an awful Western novel while living in Hoboken, New Jersey, and eventually after about three years in, in, along the east, I said, I've got to go back to where I really do belong. But, you know, it, it did take me going away, as I think it does a lot of people, to discover where it is that you really belong. And, and now I live in uh, quite rural areas, and I can I sort of can say, like uh, Jeremiah Johnson says in the movie, I've, uh, I've been to a town. Mm-hmm. And I think that describes a lot of people. Uh, yes, it be, it, be it Utah or not, you 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 have to go away, I guess, to appreciate. You do coming back to the the place uh, that that as you describe it, horrible Western novel. Is that out and available? Can we can we read that? It is not. It has okay. been resting for many many years, okay. and uh, <laughs> it may uh, become a less horrible Western novel one of these days. Yeah, uh, we continue to work on it. All right. Yeah, um, it's been in deep freeze, but I feel like I can. Uh, I can write it a little bit better now yeah. <laughs> after a little bit more experience. Tell me about the experience of going to, uh, before we get to Utah, going to Wyoming. You ended up in Wyoming. Yes. Uh, uh, my wife, Jennifer Sorensen, and I both taught at Western Wyoming College uh, for 14 years. And uh, it, was a, it was a great time for us. Uh, uh, you know, Wyoming has a just magnificent mountain scenery, certainly the Wind Rivers. Uh, the darker part, of course, was it was during the the latest gas boom, and uh, we saw really a lot of Wyoming trans, uh, transformed into a kind of an industrial park. And so you had both, and certainly around the Pinedale area, you still have those magnificent mountains, and they're overlooking uh, an amazing amount of uh, energy development. So that's Wyoming in a nutshell. I wonder, have you read another passage? This is page 101. 
this is your uh, chapter called uh, High Plateau Blues. You're talking about uh, Boulder Mountain. Yeah. Um, and so 101 and then over the page to the to the break. Okay. Um, and and this starts just kind of looking at the mountain and wondering if uh, I really want to go hiking there. <laughs> anyway, way, way up there, just below the rim crags, is where trees grow thickest, making their own shade to nurture more trees. Up there, rhyolite and andesite talus mingle with stands of too tight timber, making a walk through slow, snaky, miserable, and sour. Up there is where you learn to call it the ugly, the Boulder Mountain ugly, and you learn to avoid it, the long and the short of it, the always a part of it, the low-down high country trouble of it, the dues you pay to get through it. Having said all that, I do believe it's calling out to me. You learn to know better, but it's pretty and high and alluring in its repellency and hard to believe. The land of all these blues, conifers in dark shadows, lighter misty ridges, grayer bluebird skies, the ever blue drapery of the southernmost holdings of the Hudsonian forest, a cool zone in an otherwise cooked country. Blues, too, because these slopes stand to remind life and love tangled up in landscape, easy to get lost in. The blues, 12 bars and turnaround licks, with novelty and repetition, newness in the same old blue suede shoes. Late in the day when the light is right, those distant blue slopes seem near enough to touch. Hand me down my walking cane. <laughs> Hand me my walking cane. You're yep. a, a, an experienced climber of that mountain. You know it's uh, not a walk in the park, but uh, but there are pleasures there. There are so many pleasures, and I call the ugly just one particular part of it, where the trees are so thick that it's uh, it just makes walking through difficult. But of course, there's lower down these wonderful ponderosa and meadows, and and the high the the very top of it, of course, is like being in uh, Glacier National Park or the Wind Rivers. That uh, just an amazing diversity. And uh, last summer. Uh, speaking of Boulder Mountain, uh, some friends of mine and my uh, my lovely wife were chased by a bear across, down a meadow. It happened to be a problem bear uh, that had lost its fear of humans. But uh, it's uh, quite an experience to be chased down a meadow uh, by a bear. Uh, one does not uh, walk slowly. One runs. <laughs> a lot of adrenaline, I would imagine. Indeed, yeah. My friend was holding his uh, three-year-old and said uh, to his seven-year-old who was at his side, Ian, don't look around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, a lot of us are not going to have that experience. Uh, you know, Hopefully thank, not. Thankfully. Um, it, it, and I don't know, you get conflicting advice. Um, is it ver- black bear versus grizzly? Is there a difference there? One you should run from, the other not? Uh, yeah, this was a, a cinnamon-colored black bear. And, you know, I've seen several bears in my time in the mountains and uh, yeah, generally with a black bear, of course, you yell at it and throw rocks and sticks, and it will run away. But mm. this one uh, just sat there watching us. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, easy to say don't run from a bear, but uh, there are times when uh, when one does. You recount an experience in the book um, of uh, going out as part of a group. You were a hooter. And you were you were looking for you're going to count uh, owls. Yes. I wonder if you'd tell me a little bit about that. So what do you, what do you do as a hooter? Well, you know, uh, you don't work at Hooters, but you uh, actually learn <laughs> the, how uh, the owls make their calls, which uh, you know isn't the, doesn't take too terribly long. But literally, uh, to do the surveys of the national forest land, uh, you walk around at night. And you stop every few minutes, and you make these calls, and uh, you see if you get a response. And if you do, you try to get closer to the animal and find out exactly where it is. And uh, the point of that was to try to you know, find the owls and then trap them, put a radio uh, receiver on them, and find out where it is that they, they were flying, where they were feeding, and when they were, where they were uh, roosting, and you know you have to you have to know these things in order to figure out how to manage manage the land. You know, it was uh, for me 
uh, kind of spooky to walk around at night um, by by oneself. And you know, the, as as you know, the sounds of the forest are always magnified at night. And uh, there are a lot of cows up there, so you'd be out there hooting and listening, and suddenly you'd hear uh, kind of a loud foot sound or even a growl because the bulls will sometimes growl and it's like oh great here comes a bear i'm dead you know so that's a little dramatic but it was quite exciting to do that at night well, that's kind and of and the thing i'm sorry no go ahead the thing that we, that we found out you know by by studying the owls is uh that they were roosting uh lower down in the sandstone uh of the water pocket fold say and they were foraging up higher on the uh the national forest land so it, it actually didn't hold any threat for loggers, and it wasn't exactly what uh, people had thought. But now, at least, uh, we have a lot better information on owl behavior. Mm-hmm. That was interesting to me, uh, reading that, that, uh, that at night, uh, the, all the sounds are magnified, and there could be some confusion. You, you don't know whether it's a cow or a bull, or, or it could be a bear. And so that fear right. is magnified. And, you know, you're, fla- you're shining your flashlight, and, you know, you will see cow's eyes, you know, um, and it's a little creepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder if you'd read another another passage for me. This is uh, this is from the Prelude. Uh, this is Roman numeral uh, page thirteen. And there there's uh, there's a lot sure. going on in this one. Uh, at starting the the passage uh, as we admire this exceptional American view. And you're talking about the view from I think from Boulder Mountain. Absolutely. You know, uh, any view from Boulder Mountain is a good view. But uh, on the east end, where the road is paved now, uh, it's just a spectacular, uh, you know, it has uh, the beautiful desert, it has the Henry Mountains, and you're up on a mountain at uh, Boulder, and it, it's just a fabulous uh, thing to look at. So uh, to me, I try to put it in kind of a national or even international context. As we admire this exceptional American view, as grand as the National Mall in April, New York Haba on the 4th of July or the Golden Gate in October, Don Juan says, You are weak and conceited, Kevin. I am. Don Juan is in much better physical condition. He trains daily, obsessively, hiking, running, riding his bicycle up hills. And as for conceit, mine is richly colored. Yes, and that makes me worried about the way down, Don Juan. There's much tensegrity in the snowpack. Tensegrity, dude. Death must be our advisor. Death, or at least serious injury. We're talking about skiing down some just wretched snow conditions. Shall I continue? Yes. Don Juan works in Capitol Reef National Park and lives in the employee housing known as the Fishbowl. Living there, he gets to know everyone's business and everyone his. Don Juan works as the cultural resources manager. He manages to protect the Fremont culture ruins and artifacts by not telling the public where they are and shines more light on the Mormon homesteader relic orchards. Some days he manages to walk around armed with a clipboard. Because he's a good hand, fit, steady, and trained, he participates in park rescues, plucking stuck, scared pilgrims from ledges and cliffs, He also spends quite a bit of time online looking for his next federal employment opportunity. Mm -hmm. Obvious stop there. Uh, There's a lot there that I want to talk about. First of all, tell me a little bit more about Don Juan. This is uh, that certain people, I guess, uh, go around from job to job. They they try to try to get jobs in in this field. And it uh, requires kind of a nomadic life sometimes. It does. I mean, I think that a lot of people, when they meet park employees, wonder what it is like, you know, going from park to park. And, uh, you know, a, a federal employee does that to, as a promotion or to get more experience or because, uh, you know, somebody always wanted to live in Alaska. Uh, and, uh, you know, the reality of, of living in parks is not always glamorous. You're, you're kind of stuck in a small place where everybody knows your business. But uh, on the other hand, it's pretty nice to wake up every morning in Fruta, Utah. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty nice. Um, so uh, th- this part about uh, plucking stuck, scared pilgrims from ledges and cliffs—I um, have potentially been that uh, scared pilgrim. I haven't got stuck on a ledger cliff, but uh, uh, there's something about going out into the into into the wild 
and for someone like yourself, places that would seem wild to me probably wouldn't seem wild to you, but uh, there, there's just something about that, and it draws a lot of people in. There is, and, and you know, uh, my days as a high adventure guy are uh, over, but it doesn't matter. In a place like Capitol Reef with all those ledges, you just never know where it's going to end up. And that's, of course, the beauty. You know, everything's kind of on a slant. You go up or you go down, but you might end up in a talus gully or a pour-off pour or or you, you just have to turn around, and, and it is incredibly exciting uh, to to wander up in that country because it's so weird, it's so different. It never really seems to make sense, although of course it's all it all makes sense because of water. But uh, you know, you're absolutely right, Tom, and that's I think why people just love it. And just walking down a wash with all the multicolored rocks and the cliffs around you is, is such a fabulous experience for many people. This line about how Don Juan uh, protects Fremont culture ruins and artifacts by not telling the public where they are. And there's, Absolutely. We, we've had a lot of yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, Range Creek is one example. Yes. Uh, you know, if, if you're having thousands of visitors to a place, uh, you, you have to not, you know, let people know where certain things are. Um, yeah, Range Creek is amazing. How could that place have been undiscovered, so to speak, for so long? And there's And there's so much there. But you know, in, in, in Capitol Reef, uh, it's not as though they have many, many cliff dwellings, but they have a, a lot of sites, and, and they do uh, try to keep them quiet to protect them. Elsewhere in the book, you talk about how some of the artifacts are being kept safe in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, it, yeah. It seems like, you know, it's, it's, it's at a remove, but on the other hand, you want to protect them. Right, and, you know, in, in that particular case, where the, the artifact, it wasn't my decision, it was Don Juan's decision, but where the artifacts were stored, it was just at an old house that uh, could at any time have been vandalized or burned down or even hit by a rock slide. It just wasn't particularly safe, and, and uh, you know, you can't just build a gigantic new museum in the middle of Fruta. Uh, that's just not something that can happen. So, you know, there are always compromises, there are always difficult decisions that all of the land managers make, and certainly in the national park with so much interest in so many wonderful places, you do have to kind of pick and choose. Now, in Capitol Reef, there's, um, uh, I don't know, kind of a monument to uh, to the Mormon settlers. It's, it's, it's an orchard there um, set up by Mormon settlers. In the book, you talk about that you, you have Mormon pioneer heritage. In fact, some of your heritage is in Cache Valley, where I'm speaking to you right now. Indeed. Uh, some uh, some original settlers in, uh, what, uh, Richmond and Smithfield and Logan. Yes, indeed. Uh, and uh, my great-great-great-grandfather came across in 55, and, and his second wife was uh, a woman who had survived the Willie Handcart disaster and had lost both of her parents. Um, both of her parents died west of South Pass, almost at the crossing of the Green River. So, um, you know, that's a, a wonderful story, uh, very, you know, sad and, and trying story, but it's a, it's a, it's a story that uh, needs to be told accurately, and that's part of what I was trying to do in Big Wonderful. There's no need to exaggerate or make up facts. The story itself is so compelling and so interesting that if people learn what it really happened, they'll, they'll make their own interpretation, and, and it's a uh, it's a very interesting story. Some of these areas, of course, were settled by Mormon pioneers. They were very, very Mormon in character. Then others came in. You talk about Goodwater as, as being a place where several religions and the, I guess, the non-religious can uh, coexist. Yes. Uh, you know, Goodwater uh, has always been considered uh, kind of an outlaw town. Uh, by the good people of, of Wayne County. If you drive to uh, into that area, you know, once you pass Bicknell, you have to go through what's called Red Gate. Before you get there, it's all gray, and all of a sudden you're in the middle or the beginning of the Red Rock country. And I think that's one of the reasons that uh, people have always been drawn to, to good water to uh, escape the law or other people. And uh, so, uh, you know, when I got there in 1988, uh, 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 quite a few hippies uh, had had settled there, um, and there were uh, other uh, you know groups that that made it a little bit more diverse uh, than a typical uh, 
southern Utah town, and, and that diversity is certainly true today. It's a, it's an unusual, unusually diverse town uh, with different religions and different people, which makes it, of course, interesting. But there can be tensions, I believe, and, and sometimes it uh, breaks down that uh, the religious lines up with the political, and then there there's a double divide. Absolutely, of course, yes. But, you know, not every member of any particular group agrees. Uh, but, yeah, there's there's conflict in, in uh, every little town in, in southern Utah because there's so much uh, public land and so many um, great resources to be used, and we do have a choice on how we, how we use the resources, and, and people uh, don't agree, and, and they sometimes uh, discuss things and are civil, and sometimes they stamp their feet and yell at each other, but... The discussion is, I think, a very, very good thing. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Kevin Holdsworth, the new collection is Good Water. And he's talking about South Central Utah, land he loves. Um, grew up in Salt Lake, went away and went to Wyoming for a while. Now he's in this rural area of Utah, uh, loves the land. And there's a lot in the book. I want to talk when we come back about public land issues. There is an, an essay in the book, a chapter called National Monuments. It uh, consists of a letter from Kevin Holdsworth to President Clinton, thanking him for creating the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. I also want to talk about uh, how Kevin Holdsworth got to Big Water, went out and built a cabin not much bigger than a shed. Uh, we'll talk about that and some of the people he met following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. What kind of leader is best is a national debate in a presidential election year. The media generally favors a brash, vocal, audacious person who claims to have the answers. But history favors humility. Most presidents, business leaders, and church and civic leaders face unique problems every day. They need to be humble enough to ask for experts, to seek advice, to clarify the best course of action. While we need leaders who see the big picture, we also need leaders who can ask the right questions and move us forward to the next set of problems. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is writer Kevin Holdsworth. Uh, his new collection is Good Water. These essays combine memoir with a biography of place. And Kevin Holdsworth creates a public history of the land he calls home, Good Water, Utah. The high desert of south central Utah is at the heart of his own story. And it's the uh, heart of the tor- stories he tells about other people as well. The survivors and casualties, as he calls them, the small remote town. Uh, Good Water is out from University Press of Colorado. Kevin Holdsworth uh, will be uh, reading and signing his book uh, on a couple of occasions here uh, tomorrow evening uh, at 7 p.m. at the King's English Bookstore in Salt Lake City. That is Friday evening, 7 p.m., King's English Bookstore in Salt Lake City. Then on March 17th, there's a convocation at 12.30 p.m. on the Snow College campus in Ephraim. That's in the Eccles Fine Arts Center. And that evening, 6 p.m., a gender study event. On April 17th, they'll be in Denver at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. Some areas you can uh, interact with Kevin Holdsworth. You can interact with him here as well if you'd like. Your question or comment uh, would be much appreciated at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Perhaps you have your own small town experience, your own Boulder Mountain experience, or uh, other experience you'd like to recount, or your question or comment. Kevin Holdsworth, I wonder if have you read just a paragraph. This is from uh, Roman numeral uh, 16. This is the end of your prelude, which you call Winter Light. Okay. And uh, you're, I think, uh, still up on Boulder Mountain, looking out across the, the distance. Talk about why people come to this country. Well, uh, you know, Tom, I, I think you, you mentioned it, uh, and, and that is, you know, pleases me, and I think everyone who loves the country. There is a poll um, uh, 
some of its danger, some of its freedom, some of its beauty. But, uh, you know, you look down, and, and this is what I think you see in the winter. The ruddy wasteland below glows. It does and does not beckon. Some people come here to hide just as they did in the outlaw days. Some are attracted to the freedom the edge provides. Some disappear following the roots of the old people. Some go down into the ledges and never return. There's something out there that pulls you away and into the chaos of the canyons. Something out there makes leaving it all behind easy enough to do. Hmm. So we've talked about the upside. There's probably a downside, even though you love the land, right? Uh, I can. My mother grew up in a very small town out in uh, Hinkley near Delta. Um, she loved it, but I always thought going back to visit with her, to visit grandparents, everybody knows everything. You know, yeah. there's, there's no anonymity. Sure. You, everybody's in everybody's sure. business. That's one thing. Um, and uh, you talk about Wayne County in winter. It's one thing to go to Capitol Reef National Park in, you know, say, I don't know, May or July or something. Spending the winter. And you talk about <laughs> people almost having kind of a bipolar feeling. Well, yes, indeed. Uh, that's, of course, also true in Wyoming. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there's not a lot to do in, in Wayne County. In, in fact, there's, uh, there's, there's nothing to do in Wayne County. So, uh, you know, after a while, I think... Um, you go a little stir-crazy, you get a little cabin fever. So the highlight of the week is driving over the mountain and going to Richfield, where there's a Walmart, and until recently there was a Kmart. Um, and that's true, of course, in, in many rural areas. But Wayne also has the uh, some pretty harsh weather and, and certainly a lot of wind. Um, different times of the year, you know, one of the nicest months is November, but when January, February, and March come around, it can be, it can be grim. You talk about uh, one passage, is, I can't remember who this was, talked about leaving Wayne County and going, I don't know where, as driving up to Utah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, a local fellow who, uh, you know, expressed, I think, that the notion that a lot of people in Wayne County have, that it's a, kind of its own little uh, part of the world. I mean, it is still very isolated. It's hard to get to Wayne County. You have to go over the mountains or, or through the water pocket fold. And, uh, you know, most people in, in central Utah refer to going to Provo or Salt Lake or Ogden as up north, you know. But uh, when he said, yeah, we're going to drive up into Utah, it really, it really made me laugh because <laughs> I think that it is a bit beyond the pale. You know, and, and certainly in, in Severe Valley, people make fun of Wayne County, but uh, I, noticed, I noticed that there are an awful lot of outsider tourist types that are very drawn to, to Wayne County, and I think that's going to continue. And you mentioned in that passage, some people uh, come here, uh, talking about the, you know, south-central Utah that you love. Some people come here to hide. Some people attracted freedom of the edge. Some disappear. Yeah. Uh, I think you've probably known all those types. Sure, sure. You know, uh, I, I've always felt that once you uh, kind of leave the, the tiny town and, and go out into the, the wilderness, uh, nobody's watching. Uh, you know, everything's allowed. There's, I've always just felt this this kind of freedom, um, and uh, you know, I, I I have a pat a quote from Heart of Darkness in one chapter, and you know, I think the the question is when you're that far away, when you have no real rules or no no real strictures, uh, what do you do? You know, do you become savage? Do you withdraw into your shell? Do you uh, reach out to people? I mean, you're I think, more able to do what, what it is that you want to. And, you know, freedom is always that way. You know, how, how do you use it for, for better or worse? Tell me about uh, going and building this, I don't know, you call it a shed or a cabin. It's very small. You say it's <clears throat> kind of around the size of the building that <clears throat> Thoreau lived in, 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 in Walden. Why did you, you want to do that? Well, uh, you know, so many people, I think, want to be homesteaders, you know, want to live off the grid, would love to live in a beautiful place. I think it's a dream that many people have. I mean, just the idea of, say, a mountain cabin, how many Utahns have one or want one? Many, many, many. Uh, so anyway, I, you know, I, I acquired this piece of land uh, 
homesteading on 1.6 acres rather than 160. And the first thing I did was to build a, a shed. Um, and that there are reasons for that, but the shed's still there. But we lived in a shed for a summer while, while we built uh, part of the first half of a cabin. Really a house, but call it a, a cabin. And uh, so, you know, yeah, of course I toss in Thoreau. People think that Thoreau lived somewhere out in Alaska, but in fact he walked to town almost every day. He had lots of friends and visitors. So, you know, so did Abby in Desert Solitaire. I mean, not, you know, you have to have some some contact with people. And in fact, I think writing about the people is essential. You know, you can just describe nature all you want, but after a while it gets kind of dull. Who are the people that live there and what, what can they tell you, teach you? So, speak of that, uh, tell me about your neighbor. Yeah. Well, I had two wonderful neighbors uh, early on. One uh, one's name was Doug Wells, and he was a he was a rancher, and uh, he was a wonderful neighbor. We got along great, uh, though we certainly didn't see eye to eye on on most things. And another neighbor was a still is a legend in Wayne County. Her name was Jet Smith, and uh, she uh, was uh, a very fearful presence. And people uh, tried to stay on her good side because if if you didn't, she'd say. What have you been doing? Have you been neglecting me? <laughs> and she'd make you feel terrible and, and uh, all that sort of stuff. She was a great lady. I met her uh, when she was in her 80s, and uh, she told me many, many stories about about Wayne County in the, in the early days. You, uh, you talk about um, that you just built the cabin, and looking back, you, uh, you talk about building your mistakes in. You had regrets about how you how you built it. One one downside was the mice got in. You got hantavirus there, um, but but then you talk about uh, you know sifting through experiences and what to leave out, what to leave in, and you kind of parallel that with cleaning out the shed with this hantavirus there. there there's a danger there. Yes, Tom, and I, you know I really appreciate your your perceptive uh, comments. You know I, I was always knew I would write about this place, Good Water. I wrote poems about it. I wrote short fiction. I wrote essays. And I put it all in the shed, uh, kind of a metaphoric shed. And at one point, or at some point, I decided, well, I've got to clean the shed out, see what I can use here, and, and see what I have to take to the dump. Uh, but, you know, too, the mem- it's, it's a kind of shed of memories. And I think all of us have memories that we may not want to uh, expose ourselves to. So, you know, the, the writing process and, and the living process and the memory process kind of all get, gets caught up in that, in that little shed that we build that we wish we had built differently because we didn't really know what we were doing. So what would you say, going through this process, I think you, you know, teach students as well, in that process, what, what's your advice of how to proceed? Because you have to, you can't carry it all. You have to sift through and decide what to keep and what not to keep. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the harder parts. I think that, you know, what I would tell, try to tell my students is that everything that is worth doing is hard. It takes a lot of work. I know that maybe sounds old-fashioned, but uh, that's true of building a house or, or writing a book uh, or, or raising children or, you know, many, many things that people do. It, you have to work. You know, and I, 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 I'm always reminded of my father and mother who were, you know, de- depression children, and that was always their lesson, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, right, you always have to work, blah, blah, blah. But, <laughs> you know, life has certainly taught me that if it's worth doing, it's going to be hard. It's going to take some time. And in a, I guess, a beautiful but sometimes economically challenged uh, place like maybe right. like Big Water, that uh, even harder maybe that you have to work. Yeah, it's frustrating, you know. The local people in Wayne County, Goodwater, they they want to work, and there there just isn't a whole lot. And uh, so that's a that's a story. I think that's true in many parts of the rural West. It's you know being depopulated, and the, the jobs seem to be going elsewhere. And, and so it's it's tough. Well, let's take another break. We're talking with Kevin Holdsworth. His new collection is called Good Water. And uh, tells the stories of uh, South Central Utah, the land he loves, 
Um, and uh, he will be, Kevin Holdsworth will be uh, doing reading and signings at the following times and places. Friday, tomorrow, March 4th, 7 p.m. at the King's English Bookstore in Salt Lake City. Then on Thursday, March 17th, a couple of events, a convocation and a gender study event at 12.30 p.m. and 6 p.m. respectively on the campus of Snow College in Ephraim. And on Sunday, April 17th, if you happen to be in the Denver area, he'll be at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. That's the downtown bookstore in Denver. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Logan Regional Hospital Nutrition Services, helping people live a healthier life through programs directed to prevent diabetes and heart disease. Information at loganregional.org. I'm Robin Young. Bonnie Raitt wrote five tracks for her new CD, Not Easy, when you've worked with the greats. When you have Randy Newman and Paul Simon and Dylan mm. and Jackson Brown, and you, then you look at your own lyrics next to that and go, I don't know, maybe back to the drawing board. Next time, here and now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Kevin Holdsworth. Uh, Kevin Holdsworth uh, teaches uh, uh, writing, higher education at Snow College. Uh, he's taught at Western Wyoming Community College and Weber State University. Uh, he uh, writes here about uh, the country he loves in South Central Utah. The uh, name of the collection is Good Water, and it's out from University Press of Colorado. Kevin Holdsworth will be reading and signing his book, uh, uh, tomorrow, f- Friday, March 4th, 7 p.m., King's English Bookstore in Salt Lake City, then a couple of events on Thursday, March 17th, on the campus of uh, Snow College in uh, Ephraim. Kevin Holdsworth, uh, I want to talk a little about about uh, current issues. I want to get into this uh, with your chapter, which consists of a long letter to President Clinton. It's titled National Monuments. And I wonder if maybe you could just read the first couple of paragraphs. This is page 135. Sure. Thanks, Tom. Dear Mr. President, thanks. Thanks so much for declaring this muy grande national monument down here in southern Utah in 1996. I know, I know. You did it for political reasons, to curry favor among the green votes on both coasts, the Hollywood elite liberal cabal, and you've never seen the area and probably never will, but who cares? You did it, and here's to you. You did the right thing. Did you ever? This is why I think so. I'm fortunate enough to spend quite a bit of time down this way, and every time I drive over Boulder Mountain and look down on your creation, not your creation, strictly speaking, Mr. President, but rather God's, I just get goosebumps I try to be in a position to toast you every time. Sometimes in winter, I ski to the top of Moron Hill, even higher than the highway, to get a raptor's eye glimpse of all that grand country. And I know everything I see before me is protected, locked up, exempted, declared, saved, and set aside. Safe enough. So you're you're definitely in favor, obviously, of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Uh, that word "locked up," the phrase "locked up," that's an argument you hear, and I'm sure you've heard it from neighbors, perhaps. If you declare a national monument, you create a national park, you do a designated wilderness area. It's locked up. You prevent a way of life for some people that they've lived for many years, and 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 you prevent perhaps economic development. What would you say to that? Sure, and I've you know the thing about. Grand Staircase is, uh, it kind of reminds me of what Ed Bangs says of wolves. There aren't really any wolves. It's a symbol. And, of course, many, many people still hate Clinton, still hate the National Monument. And, you know, perceptions differ. But I I promise you, if you drive from Panguitch to Goodwater, you'll see an awful lot of economic development. You'll see restaurants and motels and gift shops and... uh, art galleries and all of that because that area is now a national monument. Of course, in politics, you win some and you lose some. Uh, I often wish that people could get along better and compromise, but I sure don't see a whole lot of evidence of that around us. I think we just uh, kind of 
fight from our positions. But uh, on the other hand, absolutely living in, in a small town and getting to know these people uh, personally makes a big difference. You may not always agree, but it's really hard to hate somebody that you know. It's much easier to hate somebody that you don't know. So do you, uh, would you favor a proposed Bears Ears National Monument that uh, some oh, groups are? Absolutely, and of course, and I, I do think it will happen. Uh, the, big, the biggest difference uh, in that is you have so much support from uh, the tribes, the original inhabitants, ancestors, and, and that's a, a different deal. You know, uh, I understand that people will be frustrated that uh, the president if he does declare it, we'll use the Antiquities Act. But, you know, again, I don't see a whole lot of compromise when Scalia was, uh, had only been dead an hour. People were screaming that they weren't going to consider uh, a new Supreme Court nominee. So certainly both sides do it. Uh, what about the uh, public lands initiative, uh, Representative Bishop's process here? What do you think about, about that? Well, I think they took a lot of time and they tried to uh, appeal to a, a wide variety of constituencies. Uh, I think it's tilted a little bit too much in, in favor of energy development, and I, I think that the national monument they have at Bears Ears isn't big enough. Uh, a lot of people care, and that's what's so, uh, I think, that's one of the changes uh, early on, uh, even 30 or 40 years ago, you didn't have the uh, large number of people who really are uh, in, in favor of a, a, a very uh, conservative in in a, in the traditional sense, preservation. Um, let's keep this land as it is for as long as we can. Um, and there's there's now you know tens of thousands of people in Utah. They don't all live in Salt Lake who are on that side. Obviously, there's another side. There always will be. Um, you you quote Stegner in this uh, the, this letter that, that uh, even if people don't go into this land, which describes a lot of people, that yeah. the idea of wilderness is a good idea. It is, and of course that's that's one of Stegner's more famous ideas. But let me let me put it to you this way: it doesn't have to be wilderness. Um, there was a big fight over paving the Bird Trail. In my opinion, the environmental community may have been on the wrong side in that one. And the reason I say that is, I would take my elderly parents, who were not in very good health, we would drive uh, over to Boulder, and we would take a left, and we would drive down the the Bird Trail and through Long Canyon and out into the circle cliffs, and, and uh, my folks weren't going to walk around. They just wanted to look at it, and they loved that country, and uh, I loved the fact that it was uh, you know, going to stay this way for a long time, even with the road. And uh, to me, it felt like this was the right thing. These people had worked hard for their country, and here was a big piece of country that they could enjoy from a car, uh, and they, they, they could see that it would always be that way. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, yeah, that is. That is a wonderful thing. Um, uh, so just parenthetically, uh, this you talk about visitors coming and that, that you feel like the, the, the uh, declaration of a monument has helped uh, with this uh, economic development, this area. Um, you talk about, uh, you know, a lot of Germans and, and other visitors. Is this true? <laughs> Do some... <laughs> Do some ask who feeds the deer? You talk about, uh, you know, questions that... Uh... Oh, Tom, I worked in Capitol Reef <laughs> in the visitor center, and, you know, <laughs> I would make a list of the questions that people ask, and it's not their fault. You know, people are, lose their minds on holiday. But, yeah, you know, why are the rocks red? <laughs> who feeds the deer? Can we eat the fruit? Is that really water in that river? You know? <laughs> Uh, it's a foreign place, you know, yeah. and the colors and the wildlife, you know, uh, one time I had a guy convinced that he had seen a kangaroo rat in the campground and it was a jackrabbit, <laughs> you know, yeah, there's, no, there's no harm in that. And and I've probably been that person, you know, from sure. time to time. Sure, yeah. I have yeah. too, <laughs> you know, in, uh, at Wilson, Wyoming, I just to be a, a bad boy, I, I had my son go in there and ask uh, in the new visitor center, the the poor ranger there, where are the Tetons? Yeah. You know, the Tetons are towering <laughs> over the place. So that's one of the yeah. one of the challenges of working in the national parks. You do have to deal with people's uh, difficult questions with a straight face. We just have a, about a minute left, minute and a half here. Uh, I wonder if you'd uh, talk a little bit about Ken Brewer. He's, of course, well-known in Cache Valley, taught at Utah State University, wonderful poet, wonderful teacher. Uh, you had the good fortune to to be associated with him. 
Yes, and, and thanks for asking. My uh, my wonderful wife Jennifer Sorensen uh, is uh, Ken's uh, stepdaughter, uh, so we we spent a lot of time with Ken. Uh, I didn't know him before I went to Utah State, but he, he became my mentor, and, and he was a teacher of, of many people and a, a great mentor. And and the 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 last chapter uh, is uh, is kind of remembering him uh, in in uh, his typical garrulous way and. Uh, Sitting around a campfire, I was lighting off firecrackers, fireworks, and he was enjoying the spectacle. And and of course, we didn't know that you know he didn't have much time left. Nobody, it was quite a shock to everyone. But uh, the the book ends with a poem that uh, is a, is a typical Ken poem. He he's talking about memory, and he's he's talking about our son Chris, and he's talking about water, and uh, it, it kind of sums it up. And he he just up and wrote this in our in our journal and and uh so for all i think everyone who knew and loved ken i hope it's a kind of a fitting tribute just have uh, about 30 seconds i wonder uh, maybe you'd read that poem to 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 end here sure page 184 yeah, it's uh called watering the bushes in goodwater utah 7304 for christopher christopher watered the bushes his bear behind bright beyond the bonfire, then went to bed in his room, second story of the Goodwater house. Later that night, I too watered the bushes, discreet in the bright full moon, memories of my father on the Tippecanoe River 60 years ago, showing me how left hand on your hip, right hand on your hose. Behind us, the mighty bonfire flared, Sassafras popping, flames rising, sparks. After all these years, it's one lesson I learned and still remember. That is a poem of, uh, of uh, the wonderful uh, Ken Brewer, and uh, that's in Good Water. It's a new collection from Kevin Holdsworth, and it's out from University Press of Colorado. He'll be at King's English Bookstore Friday, 7 p.m. Kevin Holdsworth, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Support for The Source on Utah Public Radio comes from the USU Utah Water Research Laboratory and the USU College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences, celebrating the 2015 Year of Water, water expertise at its source. The Great Salt Lake is shrinking, and we only have ourselves to blame. That's the message of a new white paper released by Utah State University last week. The water level of the Great Salt Lake is constantly fluctuating, both seasonally and from year to year as we cycle through periods of wet and dry. But that's all just background noise to a distinct drying up trend over the past 150 years. Craig Miller, an engineer with the Utah Division of Water Resources, created a virtual model of the Great Salt Lake for the paper, a hypothetical version of what the lake would look like today if we hadn't been drawing it down since the days of the state's pioneers. To determine the natural Great Salt Lake levels, we started with the lake levels in 1847 and continue to add flows to the virtual lake equal to the amount of human depletions estimated for that year. After adding that water back to the lake year by year, the virtual untouched Great Salt Lake is 11 feet higher than the lake that's actually sitting out there right now at one of its lowest levels in modern history. I asked Craig Miller to translate that into volume for me. So today's volume is about 9 million acre-feet, and at 4204.5, the lake's volume would be 19,777,129 acre-feet. So 9 million, the 19 million. Right. So 50%, basically. Uh, Yeah. Close to it. It would be, the volume would be close to double. So what do we learn from thinking about what the lake would look like without human interference? Well, in order to figure out the the impact of humans, you first have to figure out what the lake would look like if we weren't here. And haven't you always wondered what the lake would be like without humans here? I mean, I have. Yeah, I have. (laughs) This was a really fun project because it answered a lot of questions that I've always had. 
But more than a fun math problem, this paper has some very real warnings. Climate reconstructions have shown that there hasn't been any dramatic decrease in natural water supply to the Great Salt Lake over the past century and a half. So the lake is half the size it's supposed to be solely because we've used that water on our lawns and fields in evaporation ponds instead. A dried-up salt lake would spell dangerous dust storms for the Wasatch Front and dry up over a billion dollars in annual income to the state. It would also be disastrous for millions of migratory birds. But if you're not a birder or a brine shrimper, why would you care that half of the lake is dried up? I think a lot of Utahns benefit from the lake without even knowing it. Josh Palmer is the spokesperson for the Utah Division of Water Resources. Someone may not think a lot about the Great Salt Lake, but they love skiing and snowboarding in Utah. Well, the lake effect has a positive effect on our snowpack. So if you love powder, you should care about the Great Salt Lake. So some may not think about the Great Salt Lake itself, but they love the variety of birds and other wildlife we enjoy seeing around the lake. So if you care about wildlife, you should care about the Great Salt Lake. And some people don't think about the Great Salt Lake, but they care about Utah's economy. Well, the lake contributes a lot via recreation, brine shrimp, uh, mineral extraction to Utah's economy. So if you care about the economy, you should care about the lake. On the day that this white paper on the Great Salt Lake was released, Senate Bill 80 was heard by the Utah House Revenue and Taxation Committee. This is a bill that would take tax dollars currently reserved for transportation projects and set it aside instead for water infrastructure projects, three projects specifically, one of which would divert more water out of the Bear River so that even less of it reaches the Great Salt Lake. And it would be used as part of a solution to help meet the needs of a growing population. The water from Utah's allocation was once projected to be needed in 2015, but due to conservation, agricultural conversions, and other efficiency projects, it's now not projected to be needed until 2040 or beyond. The Bear River Development Project is estimated to decrease the lake level by another eight and a half inches. Senate Bill 80 passed out of the House Taxation Committee and several committees before that. It's on its way to a floor vote, and if it passes, there will be a fund with a couple hundred million dollars in it, earmarked for developing the Bear River. If we can hypothesize a lake without humans, we can hypothesize a Utah without politics. So SB 80 aside and the Bear River Development Project aside, is there anything that we can do to help turn this downward trend of the lake around? We hope this starts a conversation in in areas that maybe they haven't had a conversation before. And we hope that skier or that uh, person who really cares about the economy or that person who really cares about the wildlife on the lake Um, will not only look into what's happening with the lake, but look into how they can be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, you have to to care about the lake first, right? How do we tie it to things that people already care about? I mean, I grew up in Syracuse, and I used to be able to ride my bike to the Great Salt Lake. So I innately, because it's kind of part of where I grew up, I care about the lake. However, there's, there's people who the only thing that they hear about is, is some smell or uh, brine flies or, or something like that. And they don't understand that a lot of the things that they already care about are better because of the lake. Josh Palmer from the Utah Division of Water Resources. We also heard from engineer Craig Miller. For The Source, I'm Jennifer Pemberton in Logan.